with me to the book of 1 Peter if you are not already there. 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be wrapping up our series this morning, Made, uh, made to Worship. Um, I'm really excited about uh, what, what God has given to me this morning and how this is going to lead us into a time of communion uh, here as a church body. Uh, at the end of the service. And so things, uh, just going to forewarn you right now, things are going to look a little bit different today. Uh, They are not going to be the typical um, run of the mill. Um, I have a couple of things uh, planned for us. And so um, if you would just put on your spiritual seatbelts right now, just go ahead, lock them in place. And we're going to dive right in this morning into God's word and what we have. So uh, is there anyone in here who um, is a movie watcher. I love watching movies. Okay, there's a, a good number of people that love to watch movies. Okay, great. So um, now, is there anyone who is an avid book reader? That would be me. Okay, now, is there anyone in here who is like me that will read the book, and then they'll watch the movie that, that is supposed to be a depiction of the book, and then you'll be really angry because they left so many details out? And I'm in a household, yes, yes, thank you, I resonate, those are my people. Um, I am in a family where uh, we will sit down and um, my wife asks a million questions from the time the credits in the beginning start rolling until the credits at the end of the movie start rolling. And it's one of those things that I'm, I want to be engaged in the movie and watch and be enthralled in what's going on and nine times out of ten I'm unable to do that and she asked me questions uh, even with movies that I've never seen before she's like well what's going on why are they doing that I have no idea just watch the movie if you watch the movie and you stop talking you'd be able to figure it out so me I, I love reading books and there was actually a book that I began to read many many years ago and the movie came out and I was actually very like frustrated like this is not is not going to work no one's going to be able to depict what occurred in uh this book called the life of pi anyone ever seen it the life of pi and uh for those of you who do not know the life of pi is a story of courage it's a story of faith it's a story of perseverance now there's this family who lives in pondicherry india and uh he and his family own a zoo and he's a young, a young boy, and he is forced to relocate with his family to Canada due to the Indian government changing regulations uh, and laws. And just a few days into, I promise I'm not going to give much away for those of you who have not seen it. But a few days into this journey, uh, the ship in which they uh, are riding upon to get to Canada um, encounters a storm and it sinks. And Pi's family, his entire family, is lost, but he is able to get to a lifeboat, and he survives the wreck. Now, to his, um, to his surprise, he gets to a lifeboat, and he is confronted by a raging Bengal tiger, a tiger uh, that their family um, had in their zoo, and his name was Richard Parker. I'm not going to explain the name. You have to watch the movie or read the book, Okay. So his name was Richard Parker, and so the story unfolds uh, in the life of Pi, and it's about how Pi and Richard Parker have to try to work their way across the the Pacific Ocean. Has anyone ever been in a boat with a Bengal tiger, a loose Bengal tiger? No? Well, it's it's dangerous. So uh, upon 
upon making their way uh, across the, the Pacific Ocean, Pi is rescued. And he begins to recount this miraculous story to the Japanese Ministry of Transportation about what occurred, what happened, how is he still alive, and even the fact that there was a tiger on the lifeboat with him. Now, the ministry was completely dumbfounded by his story, completely. And that he has to go in and make up another story that seemed more realistic. Something that they would be able to believe. Something that was credible. Have you ever found that sometimes some stories are just too good to be true? You ever find that in your life? That was the story of the life of Pi. Based upon actual events. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a story that for many sounds too good to be true. But the New Testament authors, we see the gospel writers, we see Paul, we see Peter. They were convinced, so convinced that this story was true. They experienced Jesus Christ in the flesh. The sinless nature of Jesus. They witnessed, they saw the miracles but they were so convinced that, that God came in the flesh, that he lived sinlessly, that he died shamefully, and that he rose victoriously. And anyone who placed their faith in this Jesus was made righteous and holy and justified sons and daughters. The, the gospel writers, the New Testament authors were so convinced that this story was not too good to be true, that it was real. I experienced it. And Peter here, as we're going to see in just a moment, is trying to remind the church, the Christians who are being persecuted, he's trying to remind them of this glorious gospel. Well, pastor, how does this tie in with our series, Made to Worship? Well, our series here, as we wrap up, I believe Peter tells us four things about Jesus that should cause us to worship. Four things about Jesus that should cause us to worship. Now I want you to pick up with me in verse number 18. 1 Peter 1.18. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Made it very personal, didn't he? For the sake of you, he was made manifest. It says, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Listen to this. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Peter is telling us that once you get saved, you are to be sanctified. Obedience to truth. That's when your soul is purified. And he goes on to say, with brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, 
not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like the grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass and the grass withers and the flower falls. Listen to this, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Do you guys believe that this morning? The word of the Lord remains forever. And he says this, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. The good news that was preached to you. And this here is God's word for us today. Let's pray. God, we come to you right now, and I ask, Lord, as your word states, that your word is quick, it is alive, it is active, and it will pierce to the soul and spirit. So, God, I'm asking you right now that as your truth goes forth, as your word is spoken in this place, God, that our hearts would be sliced open, that it would be revealed to us that you are the only way God, I'm asking for you right now for your word to fall heavy in this place that our hearts would not be able to get away from truth. That we would go away changed, fulfilled only by you in this place. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. The first thing I want us to see this morning in this passage is that Jesus was priceless. Jesus was priceless. Do you know that Jesus was the most valuable person in the entire universe? Nothing ever will compare to Christ. When God sent his son to the earth, he sent his most prized and most cherished possession. God was sending that to us. In other words, when God sent Jesus, he sent everything. That's what he was doing for us. It says in verse 18 that we were not redeemed with things like silver and gold. He's saying, he's saying things that will rot, things that will fall away, things that are, in, uh, that are expendable. He's saying right here in this moment, Peter is declaring to us, the church, that our situation was so desperate so desperate that our sin was so severe that it took the precious blood of Christ to save you. That's what Peter, he's just telling the gospel. He's just telling us how to be saved, what can set us free, what can redeem us. He's saying the futile ways of our forefathers condemned us to slavery. We were slaves of sin. Paul himself said it all throughout the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, he declared the sinfulness of man versus the redemption that comes through the Son. We were slaves from which nothing would be able to free us. No amount of silver, no amount of gold, no amount of, of earthly possession or relationship. He's saying only the priceless life of Jesus in our stead could ransom us from eternal death and judgment. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And when we think about how valuable Jesus was, when we think about that, as believers, it should drive us to worship this priceless Jesus. Drive us to worship. I'm going to ask you to do something. When you go home today, actually prior, prior to going home, we're going to have a time of communion. We're going to have a time of communion in just a little bit. 
And I'm going to ask of us to meditate on how much it cost God to redeem you and to redeem me. To meditate upon that cost. Jesus was priceless. I also want us to see that Jesus was pristine. Jesus was pristine. Do you know that Jesus was the perfect lamb of God? Look back at verse number 19 with me. It says, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Meaning that there was nothing in him that would have broken his relationship with God. He was sinless. He lived the life that we were supposed to live through Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were not meant to sin. God gave them a choice and they chose wrong. That's what occurred. We were meant to live sinless lives in the very presence of God in the garden. That's why it was created. But they chose wrong. And because of that, Peter is laying out here with some of the best Old Testament sacrificial language. He's saying animals were sacrificed, and they had to be without spot or blemish. You see it all throughout the entire Old Testament. God wanted and he demanded the best of his people. And his son was the one that was the the pristine, the whole offering for our sinfulness. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors and theologians. When I was a young child, I read through the series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Has anyone ever read the book? They know what it is. The Chronicles of Narnia. You get to uh, probably one of the most famous books in that whole series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And there is this this part in the book that is depicted in the movie. And just recently we had some friends over and the husband had never seen the movie. And I was like, oh my word, we're sitting down right now and we're watching it. So we sit down and as I was, as, as I was reflecting upon that movie, something occurred to me. In this very moment of time, there, there is a sacrifice that will need to be made and, and there's a quote that's going to come to the screen here. And so Aslan, who is the great line, it's supposed to be the depiction of Jesus Christ in this movie. And after foiling with the white witch, he comes and he says, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there was a different incantation. He goes on to say that she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead. The table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. He's speaking about the very thing in which Jesus Christ did for mankind. The table was the representation of the cross and he took the death that was due for other people and he did nothing wrong. He goes on from there, and you see just a few moments later in the movie that he is resurrected to come back and face this final battle in which we overcome sinfulness. We overcome evil only by his power. Only by his power. Jesus willingly laid down his life in your place, church. 
willingly. He died in all the ways that we sinned. Jesus obeyed. Don't forget that Jesus died for you. Even if you were the only sinner, he would have still died because God wanted to reconcile that relationship. Balcony, Jesus died for you. We should worship Jesus Christ, not only for dying in our place, but for living in our place. For living. Now this next point is probably going to mess with some of you a little bit, but Jesus was planned. Jesus was planned. Look at verse number 20. It says, He, speaking of Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. Before God made the world, He had already planned on sending Jesus Christ to live, to die, and to resurrect. It was already known that that was going to happen. It, he was chosen. Before the foundations of the world, he was chosen from all eternity. It's mind-boggling when we try to consider it in our finite minds. Before Adam ever sinned, God planned that Jesus would save us from damnation, from his judgment. Go back and read Acts chapter 4. The believers are recovering from the very first dose of persecution after Jesus is resurrected. And as they pray to God, they say, your hand and your plan is whatever we will do. Why? Because you have predestined it to take place. Meaning God already knew that it was coming. The death of Jesus, church, listen to me. If you don't walk away with anything else, walk away with this. Jesus was not plan B. God was not caught off guard by sinfulness. Jesus was planned. He was foreknown from the very beginning that he was going to have to come. And he chose. He willingly gave up his life for you and I. And while that truth will sit here and confound us in this room, it nonetheless should move us to worship God. We should be brought to our knees because God planned to send his son to, to the world. And it was for that reason and that reason alone that we should get down on our face before him and say, How great are you, God, because you've given me away. Jesus was planned. Jesus was also the only path. Jesus was also the only path. He was planned, but he was only the only path. Look at verse 21. It says, who through him, speaking of Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, your faith and hope. Jesus is the only way to God, and it's confirmed through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He's the only way. God judged his own son for our sin, 
and he vindicated him to justify us in his sight. Go back and read Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. We were made justified through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Justified. When God looks upon us as believers, he sees a son or a daughter that's worthy, that's whole, only because we are one of Christ's. You don't get that if you're not one of his. We will all stand before God one day and give an account for how we live this life. We will have to explain why we spoke every word, why we made every action. But guess what? The blessing that comes for the believers is that you don't receive condemnation anymore. You don't get cast out of God's presence anymore. You get to be with the creator, the God, the one who made you new, the one who loved you enough to send his son. It is only through him that we can be known to God. Peter tells us two chapters, less than two chapters later, in 1 Peter 3.18, it says that Christ suffered for us that we might be brought to God. We'd be brought to him. Do you know Acts chapter 4 tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved except for the name of Jesus Christ. You want to know what I also find amazing about being a follower? Being a, a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, I've had to, to study and read book after book after book. Um, I'll be launching my, my PhD here in the fall. Uh, so I can, I can have a PhD in theology and world religion. And I've studied deeply into world religions. Buddhism, mysticism, Islam. You want to know what I find very interesting? That there is no other religion that claims what Christianity does. None. Not a single religion claims what Christianity does. It says that God took on flesh, that he dwelt sinlessly among us, that he died in our place, and that he was resurrected and then ascended to the right hand of the Father. No other religion can claim what Christianity does. So church, I have a question. Does it offend you that Jesus is the only way? Are you offended that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? Have you considered why Christianity makes the claim that it does? Church, we have to wake up. There are places right here at our doorstep that are teaching and preaching false doctrine. Truths that they would cling to when they're not true at all. They are lies. There are churches here in this community that are teaching false doctrines. They're leading people to hell. We have to know what God's word says and why it says it. We have to be able to speak, not to argue with another person, to make it out like you're smarter than them, but to guide them to truth and allow the Holy Spirit to work in them. We can sit in church 
every single Sunday. We can hear the word of God preached every single Sunday. But are you willing to investigate that truth on your own? Are you willing? Are you willing to crack open your Bible and begin to seek that truth on your own? I, as your pastor, cannot feed you every single day. It's not possible for me to do so. You have to learn to dig into God's word on your own, in your own time. Even if that means that you've got to find somebody to hold you accountable to that. And so that can become a good godly habit in your life. We need the word of God. And anyone who tells you that we don't need the word of God is a liar. Go back and read God's word. It tells us that we need to know his precepts and we need to hide them in our heart. We can't know God's precepts unless we read God's word. Unless you hear God's word. Church, are you willing to investigate those claims on your own? Are you ready to stand for what God's word says. You know, the day is coming, church. The day is coming where we as a body of believers will have to be united and stand for truth. It's coming. It is at our doorstep. And I don't mean to be scary. And I don't mean to make you afraid. But I'm telling you right now, God's word tells us that it is coming. We have been in the end times, the last day since the moment that Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven. We've been in those moments of time. And so church, do you know enough truth to be able to stand? Do you know enough truth to know if someone speaks something you can tell and discern? that it's a lie or that it's a partial truth do you know enough it starts with our worship church I wish I could sit here and break down every single verse with you of every single passage and I don't have the time to do so but we have to be ready and to be ready means we know the gospel. And when we know the gospel, it should drive us to worship. And our worship should drive us to know more of his truth and to know more of who he is. It should drive us to be sanctified. Why did Paul or why did Peter write that your, your purified souls happen when you're obedient to truth? If you don't know the truth, you can't be obedient to it. And if you can't be obedient, then you're not being sanctified. And if you're not being sanctified, you're not following Christ. Church, Jesus is the only way. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth, according to John. He also reminds us of all truth, according to John. John 14, John 16. That's your homework. Go home. Read John chapter 14. Read John chapter 15. Read John chapter 16. Read it. See what John says about the Holy Spirit's work in your life. I told you guys earlier that I am an avid reader. Not only am I a movie lover, but I am an avid reader. Um, aside from, aside from C.S. Lewis, there's another author who is actually a friend of C.S. Lewis. He was the one who led C.S. Lewis to the Lord, and his name is J.R.R. R. Tolkien. He's the author 
of the Lord of the Rings series and the Hobbit series. And there is a part in the book and in the movie, uh, the final movie of the Lord of the Rings series, called The Return of the King. And there's this moment where there is a character, and her name is Eowyn. And she is the king's niece, and she has entered into the final battle of this movie secretly. She's not supposed to be there. And she's facing a Nazgul who, who is one of the most formidable foes throughout the entire movie. It's the depiction of pure evil. And she's facing this, this Nazgul and she's standing there. When one of the hobbits named Mary recognizes that she is in this moment of fighting. And it says that pity filled his heart and great wonder. And suddenly he wanted to help so that she didn't die alone. So she wasn't there by herself. That she was not unaided. And in that moment of time, it was almost too good to be true when Eowyn picks up her sword and she kills the Nazgul right there at the end. And it's too good to be true because she wasn't supposed to be there. She should have never been in that place. She should have never been in that battle. But yet she took on the darkest evil in the entire series and she defeats it. Church, at one glance from our human perspective, Jesus was not supposed to be there. Go back and read. Jesus was not supposed to have to be in our place. That was not God's intent when he created the garden and Adam and Eve. That didn't mean that he didn't know that it was going to happen. But he owed you and I absolutely nothing. Jesus did not owe you and I a thing, not a lick of anything, but he gave everything to redeem you. He gave everything to redeem me. He gave everything to redeem the prostitute and the drug addict and the alcoholic and the abuser and the adulterer. He gave everything to redeem those people. Everything. That is amazing grace. Amazing grace. That saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I've been set free. I was blind. I can see amazing grace. We should worship God because of amazing grace. We don't need all the blessings. We don't need the money. We don't need the buildings. We don't even need the AC. It's nice. It's a creature comfort here in America. I was telling someone earlier, you know, the early church didn't have AC. I was joking partly because I enjoy being cool and not sweating. But church, I have a question this morning. Would you still come and, and worship? Would you still come and worship God if we didn't have AC ever again? 
Would you still come and worship God if we didn't have lights and if we didn't have a band up here? Would you still come and worship God if we didn't have these comfy chairs? What if you had to sit on the floor? Would you still come? Would you still be here to worship God in this house as a community? I think oftentimes we forget the goodness of God. And I thought it no better place than to have a moment to reflect upon and remember the ransom through communion. As we close out this series on worshiping, you know one of our greatest acts of worship is the communion that we get to have with the Lord. There's, there's no limit to how many times a week we should, re, we should receive and partake in communion. The Bible doesn't specify. But I think a lot of times we get stuck in this rut of this is how it should look. And if it doesn't look like this, then it's not good. But church, now is our moment to get out of our seats, to come to the front in, in just a second here. And have a, a time where we reflect upon the ransom that was made. When we reflect upon how good God is. When we ask ourselves, am I ready to truly give up my entire life? Am I ready to lay it all down for whatever God wants? Am I ready to truly worship? Worship my King. Before we get there though, I just want to read to you. I'm going to jump another passage. You don't have to go there. But I just want to read to you a couple of verses out of the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is writing to the church about the Lord's Supper, about communion. And this is what he says. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you came together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it is in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It says, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing what say or what shall I say to you shall I commend you for this no I will not Paul is telling the church that this is a serious moment communion is not to be taken flippantly he's saying now is the time to steady the heart to prepare to confront sinfulness prepare to confront unforgiveness prepare to give yourself up to God and he's saying for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me and then in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Paul said in an unworthy manner, meaning the one who holds unforgiveness, the one who has ought with a brother or sister in Christ, the one who has not made their sinfulness right before God is, is taking communion in an unworthy manner. But he doesn't stop there. Paul goes on to say, let a person examine himself. Then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That doesn't mean that you have to come forward and be perfect. That doesn't mean that you have to come forward and say, I haven't sinned all week long. That means that I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to reflect upon where I'm at and ask God to search me and know me and if there's any evil within me to reveal it to me so that it can be healed it means repenting of where you are if you've gotten away from the Lord. It means coming with clean hands and a pure heart. So church, I'm going to ask here in just a moment. If you'll get out of your seats. If you'll come. If you'll partake of communion together here and in the back for those of you who are back there. There are some along the sides for those in the balcony up top. But there is something very special about this moment. We see when Jesus is with the disciples, we see as Paul is talking here that this is a family meal. This is a moment where the body of Christ comes together. So I'm going to ask of you to refrain of receiving the elements until we all collectively do it together. I want you to reflect. I want you to pray. I want you to ready your heart, but I want you to wait until we all take them together because it says that he prayed over the elements before they were received. I want to be able to pray over these elements together before we partake and receive them as a family. But there's something else. Because it's a family meal, it's only for those who are in the body of Christ currently. But I have to tell you something. It's not too late. It's not too late to receive this Jesus that we've been talking about. And so if you're in here this morning, you, you don't have to say some special prayer. You don't have to come to the front. You can cry out to God and ask Him to save you and to rescue you from all of your sinfulness. To say that you believe in His death, burial, and resurrection, that He died on the cross for your sins. If it says if we believe those things in our heart and we confess them with our mouth, we shall be saved. You can do so right now in your seat. And if you do... That'll be the greatest decision that you've ever made in your entire life. And guess what? That makes you a part of our family. That makes you a part of the family of God. And that means that you get to partake. And so church. Sorry, soundboard. Could you, by chance, play me some light music? When the music starts playing, I'm going to ask for you to just get out of your seats to the front of the back and go back and use this next few moments of time to remember the ransom, to reflect upon where you're at and to ask God to search you. You don't have to wait, church, whenever you're ready.
Corinthians 11.23 tells us that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, it says that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God, we come to you right now in this place. And there are no adequate amount of words that can say thank you for the body that was broken and the blood that was spilt for our sinfulness. You loved us And while we were sinners, you died for us. God, I pray in this place that right now would be the reason. Your shed blood, your broken body would be the reason that we worship you. That we lay down our lives. That we reach out to our neighbors, to our our friends, to our co-workers. That we would live a life that resembles a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ. God, I'm asking right now for a continued work through your truth. Thank you so much for the sacrifice, the ransom that was paid so that we had a way to be reconciled, to be justified in your eyes. Help us never to forget the cost, the cost of our sinfulness laid upon your son on the cross. Help us to remember often the love that you displayed for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. We can eat together at this time. drink as well. So before we we close and and send you um, send you on your way, we know throughout scripture in the in the New Testament that at the end of partaking in communion as a body, it said that they would leave together singing hymns and songs. And if you go back and you study throughout Scripture, you see that um, wherever communion occurred, they would sing in their own native tongue. They would sing songs, whether it was in Greek or whether it was in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Latin to us here, English. But um, I want for us just a moment, if you would, we're going to do something a little differently today, and I would like everyone to just close your eyes for a moment. When Jesus was sitting in that room with the disciples on the night before his death, he knew what was coming. He knew what was about to transpire just a few hours later, the beatings 
the nails driven into his hands. And yet after that supper, after the breaking of bread, after the installation, so to speak, of communion, they, they began to sing together as a body. And it would have been something like this. church, I want to ask you a question. Would you stand with me? The lyrics will not hit the screen for you, but I want us to sing to God about how great He is as we leave this place this morning. How great is our God. Sing with me. How great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great, how great is our God. I love you, church. You guys have a blessed week. If you would like prayer, we will be available up here. But if not, you are sent.